the amount of training sessions that I was like feeling like crap and wanted to drop out and was really struggling. And then someone would roll down their window and yell at me like, good luck in Tokyo or go Evan, go. And it was like, yeah, I needed that. I, you know, that was what I needed to push through that workout and finish. Excellence is about standing. And excellence is a requirement for your dream come true. Welcome to Unfiltered Athletes. I'm your host, Leo. In this podcast, we go behind the scenes with world-class athletes to reveal the untold stories of their journeys. From grueling training sessions to mental strategies to achieve greatness, get ready for a raw, unfiltered look at the world of sports. In this episode, I have the chance to discuss with Ivan Dunphy. Ivan is a bronze medalist at the 2020 Olympics in race walking. He won his medal on the 50km race, which was since then discontinued at the Olympics. So he hopes to compete in the 20km race in Paris next year. Race walking is not a popular sport, with only a few professionals in this discipline across the globe, and Ivan is one of them. He brings us to the journey that brought this young kid in school, trying to prove himself to other kids, to this Olympic medal, and the joy he has to be able to share his successes with his community. His first memory about race walking goes way back to primary school. Uh, I was 10 years old, standing on the start line, shortest kid in the class. You know, I had the red curly hair and the big thick glasses. I was kind of that, you know, quintessential picked on kid. And, and I remember looking up uh, at the kid next to me. He was the kid that wins all the races. And it was my first ever time trying race walk. And he kind of looked at me like, oh, you're new. What do you want to do? I was like, oh, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. So I panicked and I said, five minutes. I want to break five minutes. And it was a 800 meter race to last the track. And he kind of looked at me and was like, oh, you'll never do that on your first try. Um, and I beat that kid and I went 458. And I was like, oh, race walking. I like this. This is cool. I, I, you know, I, I got a medal and, and I beat the time I said I was going to beat. And I was, it was awesome. I loved it. And so that was, you know, that, that earliest memory is really the first memory of race walking as well. And, uh, you know, I didn't really look back. Okay, so what? Uh, how old were you, I guess, at that moment? That was 10 years old. 10, okay. So uh, race walking is a thing when you're 10 years old. Or yeah, it was in your not, school, uh, or it was... It, it, it was it, yeah, we were very lucky in, in BC um, to have it um, as part of our some, some of our junior development meets. It's part of our high school program. So there's lots of opportunities to kind of stumble upon it which is what i did um uh, so yeah so it was just it wasn't in every every uh track and field meet but it was in this track and field meet and i, I gave it a try and uh i i desperately wanted to be good at something and not many kids race walked so um you know the barrier to becoming the best was a little bit lower at that age and and so i i i you know got hooked on it awesome awesome so what after that what between i would say uh that moment that 10 year old uh four minute 58 race and your uh olympic medal what's in between and how do you get there in a, yeah, let's say I in a minute <laughs> yeah 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 for sure i mean for me it was it, it really is a journey of, of transformation and a journey of growth i mean that that kid that 10 year old who wanted to who wanted to win the olympic medal one day i mean that was my dream since from the time i was nine years old but i was so focused on winning i i defined myself by winning and losing i I wasn't a particularly happy kid. I was a sore loser. All that stuff um, wasn't the person I needed to be to win that medal. And it took a really long time, but you know, sport and chasing after that dream helped me grow into someone who first, you know, was able to view success not as winning and losing, um, but as you know, success was pushing hard 
in pursuit of your goals. And, and that freed me up to be happier and to be more confident. And, and that led to training being better. And that led to getting faster and led to getting closer to these goals. And, and, uh, you know, it, after, you know, 16 years later, um, competing at my first Olympics in, in 2016, um, you know, that was, I was so close to that medal. I was so close. I finished fourth. Um, but that just fed the, you know, fueled me all the way through to, to Tokyo and, um, Rio gave me all these opportunities to bring a whole community behind me. So all of a sudden in Tokyo, I wasn't even doing it just for myself. I was doing it for this community behind me and, and they helped spur me on. And yeah, sure enough, in that last, last kilometer of the 50 K in, in Tokyo, I was able to move into third place and, and, and get that medal, just a couple hundred meters to go. Awesome. So would you say that's so far the, the peak of your career or the, the, I would say the best moment and the one that you remember as the, the pinnacle? Crossing that finish line in, in, at the Olympics in Tokyo, certainly uh, that's the bright spot. That's, that's kind of uh, you know, that moment that I dreamt of for, you know, for, for so, so many years. Um, it was, yeah, that, that's by far the best part, but you know, there's... Okay, and so, uh, oh, maybe I lost you a bit here. Nope. Still All good. me? Yeah. Oh, okay, perfect. So the image is not moving, but you're, uh, I hear you, so that's fine. Um, so rewinding a bit, you say when you were 10, starting, started race walking, it was kind of your way to, you know, not be the red curly hair guy, but the, the winner and you, you, you found your, I mean, a sport where you could excel in. Um, were you, I would say, aware enough, like you said, I wasn't happy. Were you, did you understand that sport could help you, you know, elevate the person you were or, a 10 year old, uh, 10 year old kid is you know, too young <laughs> to realize that. And it was for you just, yeah, I, I know I can win. So that's where I'm going to push. I, I think it was a combination. I think there was a lot of things I didn't understand, obviously. Uh, but I did have this idea. And when I look back on my, on, on those you know, early years and in high school as a teenager, like, I distinctly remember like thinking, okay, like if I win this race, I'll, I'll be more confident and I'll be happier. And then I would go out and I'd win the race and I'd be like, oh crap, I'm not any happier and I'm not any more confident. And instead of, you know, rightfully learning the lesson of like, oh, well maybe winning isn't what determines our happiness and our confidence. My teenage brain went, oh, maybe the thing I won wasn't big enough. So maybe if I win the next thing, then I'll be happy and then I'll be confident. And then I'd go to the next thing and I'd, you know, win that or, or set, a, set a new personal best or something. And I'd be like, okay, that was a thing. And then, oh crap, no, I'm not happy and I'm not more confident. And it took me a really long time to learn that lesson. I kept just constantly chasing this idea that, that my confidence, like, you know, greater confidence and happiness was always one win away. It was always that next, that next level. That was what was gonna, gonna bring that. And it never really did until I completely was able to change my mindset and view success um, in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's funny because that's something that applies, well, in sports in that case, but also, you know, in life, in business and, you know, private, everything, you know, it's, it's not just reaching some, always something more. It's a growth mindset, which is also interesting, but you cannot just push through your life at, oh, I should do better. I should be better. At some point, you have to recognize that you already reached something that's pretty amazing and that you can, you know, try to reach the next goal, but for, for, you can't, you know, just live on. If I don't win at this, then it's just, it's a you know it's a fail. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If if you you know have really big goals, and I think that's important. I think like you know it's it's great to set those really big dreams, really big goals. 
but if we hinge all of our success on achieving them, um, you know, we're setting ourselves up for failure rather than mm. if we're able to look at it and say, yeah, like any, any progress I make towards that big dream, that big goal, oh, that's that success because it's, you know, brought me closer to where I want to go or, or I have to think of it another way. It's pushed me further away from where I was when I started. Um, so therefore, you know, that success, I should celebrate that. Um, it's just way easier. It's way easier to find success. It's way easier to find, you know, something that, that is positive and something that makes you happy. And, and that's what we want, right? We want to mm-hmm. set ourselves up for success as, as much as possible. Okay. So, and, and can you pinpoint a moment where in your life you kind of realize that? Because it's not at 10. Naturally, it's not when you, you get your medal at the Olympics. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. Was there like a specific event, specific moment, uh, race? A hundred percent. So the 2012 Olympics in London, um, I, that was going to be the thing. It was going to be make that team. That was the next thing that was going to bring me the happiness. That was going to bring me the confidence. And uh, I didn't do it. I, miss, I missed the team. I had a fairly, it was my first really like down year where I didn't improve. Um, and so when the Olympics started, instead of being there, I was at home, you know, sitting on the couch in the dark with a box of Tim Hortons donuts on my lap, just feeling sorry for myself and made a really last minute call to go and watch my teammate. And yeah, Gomez was competing. I kind of realized, well, uh, what am I doing? Like, this is his dream too. And, and we've been on this journey together for, you know, years now I should be there supporting him. So I, I booked a flight and I hopped on a plane and you know, was in front of Buckingham Palace a couple of days later watching, um, watching Inaki, watching, you know, guys that I had trained with and raced against achieving their dream and achieving my dream. Um, and I was on the other, I was on the wrong side of the fence. So for me, that moment was really emotional. I, you know, I was ecstatic and Inaki had an amazing race. He broke the Canadian record. Um, he got to celebrate with his family at the finish line and all this stuff. And so that was awesome. And so there was like ecstatic emotion but there's also you know really sad emotion and I was crying a lot that day and um but really for me that day that moment was when I realized that I needed to change a whole lot about how I pursued this goal and this dream and and needed to leave no stone unturned to make sure that in four years time in Rio that I'd be on the other side of that fence and, and not on the sidelines again so for me that that really does stand out as that pivotal moment it wasn't that moment where i realized oh like i need to change how i define success but it was that moment that i realized oh, okay i need to you know i i need to approach things differently uh, and then that led to teaming up with sports psych and then my sports psych was the one who helped me uh sort of realize the the faults and the flaws in in my thought process um and then that took years and years and years of actually like inst- internalizing it and, and actually convincing myself this new way of thinking was was ingrained and, and the right way to go about things. Okay, so in your success or in everybody's success, I would say, how much would you say is about the mindset? Because you seem to be talking a lot about the mindset, but you didn't ever mention, oh, I had to change my training or I had to eat better, you know, like physical versus mental. What's What brought you from 2012 to 2016 and being able to make the Olympics, do you think it's like 60% mental? What's the breakdown and how do you feel about that? Yeah, for, for me personally, it was a big part of it was the mindset shift because when I was so focused on winning, that, that bled into everything. That bled into you know a good training session and I was on top of the world. I was going to break world records. I was going to be the best ever. A bad training session, I was, I was rubbish. I was you know, never going to achieve anything. Like, why am I doing this? 
And so that emotional roller coaster when you're training 15 times a week um, you know, is a struggle. It's, it's a lot. It's a, it's a big burden. Um, whereas when I was able to switch my mindset, all of a sudden a bad workout was, yeah, okay, fine. Like, Hey, this part of that workout was good. And, or, Hey, I got through it and I did it and that's positive and, and I'll have good workouts, you know, later. Uh, this is just, you know, this doesn't define me. Da, 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 da. So for me, that actually allowed me to train better. It allowed me to sort of be more stable. It allowed me to like push through those bad times a, a lot easier. Um, and I think it really, that mental shift really improved my ability to do the physical things as well. Um, but you know, the physical training I've always enjoyed, I've always liked pushing myself and, and seeing how fit I can be. Um, so really it was just the framework, that mental framework around training that kind of unlocked that next, that next key that was necessary. Okay. And you, you touched a very interesting point where you say that roller coaster, when you train uh, twice a day or something like that, and so one day it's, I'm super hyped the other days I'm super low recently in in the news we've seen a lot of like athletes coming out and saying you know talking about depression is do you think that's something that causes it it's having that many ups and downs so close in time like the day over the next that could you know spark such uh, i guess you know mental reactions and and deep feeling uh things happening certainly i think that's that's part of it i mean i think also as athletes we also we put a tremendous amount of pressure on ourselves um uh, and, you know, our success can be so fleeting. Uh, you know, you look around funding, you look around just, you know, being named teams and all that stuff. Like it's here one day gone tomorrow, you know, one bad, one bad season, one bad performance could knock you off of your funding. And, and, and so everything is so tenuous that, that it does put, you know, a lot of stress on, on the athlete and, and it's, it's a lot to deal with. So. Um, I, I think that's certainly one element of it, but it's there, there's a lot of different reasons why that I think, and, and it's great now. You know, I think the, the biggest step in the right direction is how much more comfortable we are about talking about it, um, and, and how much you know I've learned from you know, hearing other teammates speak out that oh yeah okay like yeah I'm not this is how other athletes feel and that that is comforting to know that you're not alone and and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's great to see. You know, the the landscape we're kind of in now compared to when I was younger, uh, just how much more is talked about and acknowledged and recognized is is awesome. Interesting. And so, in that case, do you think because in the past I would say forty years, whatever the, the the field, whether it's track and field, any type of sport where you have records to beat, uh, it seems like it's always been about you know how fitter you can get, how you know faster, jump higher, everything. How much do you think in the future, maybe new records might be broken because of you know, the mental health approach that is changing and you can reach new height by you know, tackling this instead of you know, just being faster or stronger or everything? Uh, it's possible. Um, I, think, I think where the real benefits lie, though, uh, is more in... You know, I, I think we talk about this a lot in Canada. Like right now, especially, you know, we have owned the podium, which was started up in in advance of the 2010 Olympics, um, and it's kind of been a, one of our major funding arms for sport. And there's some talk now about, oh well, you know, maybe an organization called Own the Podium isn't 
the most appropriate name for something right now. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to go away from that, that performance-based thing. And I, I contend that, you know, the, the best metric that we could use in sport to measure success of, of programs or, or of different, you know, of sport in Canada is what percentage of athletes leave the sport feeling fulfilled, you know, leaving the sport on their terms, feeling happy and fulfilled. And mm-hmm. if we can increase that percentage, um, you know, I think down the line that actually would have performance benefits. So, you know, instead of having an athlete who is just driven into the ground and maybe one out of 10 of those athletes handles it and wins a medal and the other nine get sort of pushed out of the sport because they just can't, you know, they're just not happy anymore. They can't handle it. They're what all sorts of different reasons. Yeah, we got the medal, but we, you know, we, we ostracized nine, nine people who aren't going to contribute, you know, aren't going to come back to help the sport in the future. Whereas mm-hmm. if we could have, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine of those athletes leave the sport feeling really positive about sport and feeling having positive associations, but none of them won medals, but they're going to stick around in sport and they're going to become coaches in their local community. They're going to become champions for sport. And that's going to lead to more kids in the local community playing sport because we have more officials, we have more coaches, we have more volunteers. And I think long-term that development is going to lead to a higher talent pool of athletes who yeah, then some of those athletes will win, you know, will go on to win medals and be, you know, happy. And, and that's not to say that there aren't athletes right now who are winning medals who also have very positive associations with sport and and have had, had amazing coaches and and all that stuff. I don't want to oversimplify it, um, but I I do think like that would be the benefit of of the shifting landscape in sport is having more athletes leave the sport fulfilled and wanting to give back. And, and I mean, that's the ultimate measure of, you know, winning medals at the Olympics is, you know, a, a great nationalistic kind of tool that we mm-hmm. use to say, Hey, yeah, rah, rah, rah. Like every country does it. I mean, you know, it's, it is a bit of propaganda. Um, but really the societal benefit of elite sport of Olympic sport, um, is, is what the athletes go and do afterwards. You know, it's how active mm-hmm. they are in their community. It's, it's what they, it's the values they promote and, and, you know, the, whether it's just being health, you know, making healthy choices, whether it's, um, you know, chasing your own goals, whatever it is, I think that's where the real power lies. So if personally, that, that's what I think that the biggest benefit would be of a shift, you know, shifting that, that, that landscape towards more mental health, po- positive mental health outcomes, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So very insightful. Thank you. Um, so you just came back um, a few days ago. You told me from Europe. Uh, hopefully it's not too soon. But from what I saw on your Instagram and other uh, social media, you were pretty bummed <laughs> and disappointed by the result. Uh, are you able to kind of look back on it? Uh, were you able already to kind of see what you know what happened? If it was in that case again, physical, mental. Um, and if you know, you know how you recover from that to get to the in about two weeks from now at the Pan American uh, Championships. Yeah, for sure. So I was, I felt really good. I was really fit going into the race. I, I, I felt really ready for a good performance, and it was going really well. It was a 35k race in uh, Dudens in Slovakia, 
And, and was it uh, like an international race, not part of yeah, a it was sort of our, part of our sort of world World Cup tour type of thing. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I was sitting sitting in the front with a couple of guys through 20k on personal best pace, feeling really good, and then all of a sudden it was just like 22k. I was dead. I was I was barely moving anymore. anymore. And it was just the weirdest feeling because it wasn't like, okay, I'm getting tired. Ooh, okay, I'm really struggling. Oh, no, I'm slowing down. Like, oh, okay, I keep working harder. Like, try to maintain pace, but still slowing down. It was just like all of a sudden my body was just like, nah, nah, you're, you're not going to go faster than this. And like, you're not going to be tired. You're not going to be huffing and puffing and, and, and really struggling, but we're just not going to let you go any quicker than this. Um, so such a weird feeling because part of me was like, crap, did I give up? Like, I don't think I gave up. But did I give up? Because I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was struggling that much. I just couldn't go faster. But maybe I just gave up. And it was so that was, it was so frustrating to, to deal with that thought. Because, um, and that it, was during the race. I mean, that's going through your, through your brain while yeah, you were still yeah, walking and trying to catch up with the yeah, others. <laughs> exactly. Kind of like being like, am I trying right now? Like, I feel like I should try harder, but I can't go any faster. But I'm having this conversation in my head, and I'm just like, ah. It, so it was really frustrating because um, I don't know. Like looking back on the race, I still I don't think I just gave up, but I can't say for like full certainty that I didn't. So it's it's um, really odd and frustrating. But I have have a have a call with um, you know a couple of our one of our sports science sports science guys tomorrow to talk about the race and. and get his thoughts on what might have gone gone wrong and you know what we could kind of do to make sure it doesn't happen again so i'm optimistic that we'll get to the bottom of it and, and it was was just one bad race they happen um but um you know certainly it was frustrating just because i knew i was in really good shape and and had, you know, had traveled all the way over to europe for the race and, and all that stuff but um yeah i'm i'm excited to get to the bottom of it and figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen later this summer when we have our world championships Okay, and, and do you have um? Are you monitored in any way, like heart rate and anything, when you race? Like you said, that that scientist that will kind of look through that race with you, uh, or is it just is it just gonna look at the images and try to figure out what happened? Yeah, so I, I do wear a heart rate monitor. Um, I don't really look at it too too much while I'm racing, um, but definitely it's a tool that we can use um, to look look at after the fact. And so, yeah, that, that, that's one aspect of it, comparing, you know, the conditions and my heart rate, my training stat, like my training status and stuff like that to the 35K, the world championships last year that went really well and kind of trying to figure out, okay, what, what was the difference here? What, what, what are some things that could explain uh, the differences here? So, um, yeah, there, we do have some tools. We do have some, some resources that we use and, and try to, yeah, try to get to the bottom of it. Okay. So, and so what, what are the next big, I would say, event for the year? You mentioned um, the world championships in a few months. Uh, what's, uh, what's your 2023 year uh, about? Oh, yeah. It's 2023, isn't it? Uh, um, that's what I think about. Um, yeah. So world championships in Budapest uh, later this summer. That's kind of the, the target A race. Um, we'll be racing over 20K and the 35K there. So they're only a couple of days apart. So then I'll be a really tough turnaround. Um, but um, yeah, I'm excited to get back to, to racing both. I haven't raced both distances um, at a world championship since 2015. Um, 
So it'll be, yeah, I'm excited to to double up again and, and try them both. And that's really the main target for the year. And then we also have the Pan Am Race Walk Cup coming up in Nicaragua in a couple of weeks, um, middle of April. And then um, the Pan American Games will be in Santiago and Chile in uh, end of October. So it's going to be a long season, um, but okay. looking forward to looking forward to it. Awesome. So that that brings up another topic that I was interested to uh, to understand is what's your day to day as a race walker? Uh, I guess you walk a lot. But how does it happen? You know, how do you plan your your year with all the races and the training that comes with it? And you know, what's training like for you? Yeah. So training is very similar to what a marathoner would be doing. Um, I'm still adjusting, learning how to adjust my training a little bit because the 50k was my bread and butter. That's sort of what I was. Uh, what I specialized in up until 2021 and then they got rid of the 50k um, so really having to focus more on the 20k distance uh, which is you know quite a bit different and different in how you prepare for it um, so traditionally my 50k training was a lot of high mileage over 100 miles a week you know 160 to, to upwards of 200k a week um, some weeks doing two marathons you know a week on on a, on a Wednesday and a Saturday um, so lots of really high, high mileage, the 20 K it's a little bit different, a little bit lower, you know, don't have those same long walks, um, but still putting in 120 to 140 K a week, uh, and, and a little bit more faster stuff. So some intervals and some fart licks and some, some speed sessions. Um, but still, still the majority of, of any training is 80%, 85%, quite slow, quite easy. Um, and then the other 15% or so you know, pushing, pushing the pace and, and, um, yeah, it's again, not very different than, than a marathon build. And then in terms of the year, like I'm really used to having a long season. Um, you know, I, I much prefer to have races really spread out. Some athletes like to, you know, get really, really fit, have four or five races in a really short time span. And then that's, that's the season. Um, whereas I, I much prefer to, you know, train for a race, race, recover from the race, train for the next race, um, and, and then go that, go about it that way. Um, so I actually kind of like it when, when things are really spread out. And, and so this year is actually, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited for this year with, with everything being, being so far apart. Okay. And how do you, um, I mean, what are those, those races that are, I would say interesting for you? So international level, how many of them, uh, are through the year and are they like all organized by the same whatever world organization or are they more local and you just join whichever you think you know will be interesting for you so typically i start my year off down in australia um before the pandemic at least that's what i did every year and then this year was the first year i was able to get back down um and do a training camp down in australia with a lot of a lot of guys like there are guys from all over the all over the world um come together to train it's a really tight-knit community so that's really awesome so we'll traditionally have a few races down there um to start the season off. So yeah, you know, I, I start my season in January racing and then I race all the way through to October. So again, really long season. Um, and all, all of the races have to follow, you know, certain world athletics rules, um, for races to count towards qualifying or towards our ranking system. They have to have a certain number of high quality judges because race walk, obviously the judge sport. Um, and so we need to have, there's a different, there's different sort of categories of international and regional and local sort of level of judging. And so 
it is a little bit tougher. It's not like I can just rock up to my local, you know, my local track meet happening on the weekend and, and do a performance that will break a world record type of thing. I have to find races where they have adequate judging and, and stuff like that. So unfortunately, that means a lot of travel. There's not, we don't really have any top level judges in Canada. Um, so to get those races that count, I, I'm usually having to go down to go over to Europe and, and compete in Europe um, or occasionally in, in, in you know, Mexico or Latin America. So it is, a, it is hard to find races uh, locally here in, here in Canada. Um, and also there's just not that many race walkers to race against. So I, when, I, you know, when we do our nationals, there's only a couple of us there, kind of mm-hmm. top caliber um, things. So it's, just, it's always nice to go and get in a big race with a lot, of, a lot of good guys pushing the pace. Awesome. And so where do you train? So you train at home, uh, you're in BC, you train around the block and you have your neighbors seeing you 150 times every day, <laughs> or do you have specific locations where, where, you know, whatever altitude or in other, you know, more like the forest, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, the bulk of my training is just at home. So I live in Richmond, um, which is just south of Vancouver where the airport is. And, um, and it's great. Like the highest elevation It is like three meters. Um, <laughs> most of my training is done below sea level um, at home. Um, and I'll just, I can go out and, and do a 40K from my front door um, without, without backtracking, without um, having to, to you know, hit the same bit of pavement twice. Um, so really, really nice, really easy to place to train. And, and I really love it. That's one of the really cool things about, about being a race walker. And, and it would be similar for, for runners as well, is that we have so many great athletes, but... Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of hidden. They're, they're at the, you know, at the tennis courts or they're at the, at the fencing center or at the, at the pool. Um, and so unless you're at those places, you don't see them. Whereas I'm just out on the streets of my city. And so I'm super recognizable. Race walking is a distinct movement We're we're easy to spot. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, every day there's people that are honking their horns, cheering for me, uh, waving at me. Yes lot of people that I see every morning that we say good morning to and stuff like that. So it really is, it's, it's awesome for that reason because it does create that sense of community. Uh, before Tokyo, so normally I would go to altitude and, and do a big block altitude, altitude training before a big race and all that stuff. But we couldn't before Tokyo uh, because of the pandemic. And so I was at home training the whole year. And the amount of training sessions that I was like feeling like crap and wanted to drop out and was really struggling. And then someone would roll down their window and yell at me like, good luck in Tokyo or go Evan, go. And it was like, awesome. yeah, I needed that. I, you know, that was what I needed to push that workout and finish. And, um, so it, it was, it was so awesome to have that support from the city that I grew up in and, and that, you know, has given me all the opportunities to get to this point. Um, yeah, it's really special. It's really made the metal feel like, feel like it's not mine i do a lot of school talks here in richmond I, i've talked to just thousands of, uh, of elementary school and high school students here and every one of them has, has gotten a chance to hold the medal and, and and take a look at it and it really does feel like it's not my medal anymore like it's you know it's the shared the shared medal that that i won because of their support and and uh and that sort of thing so it doesn't really feel like it's just mine Yeah, that's awesome. So you have one. Um, when is the next one? 2024, Paris? What's your uh, <laughs> next year? Basically 18 or yeah, 16 months? It's, month? it's, coming, up, uh, it's what, coming up soon. 
Yeah, and so two questions. How do you prepare? I guess basically you'll just repeat whatever you said, training, training, and trying to you know, reach your, your peak. Uh, but the second question is, what are the the minima or the rules for you to you know be qualified for the Olympics? Do you have, is it the world ranking? Do you have to beat one specific, you know, whatever, record in a year or something? Yeah, so there's uh, the qualification is kind of twofold. There is a, there's a, a standard um, that uh, for the 20K, I think is just, it's about an hour 20 hour 20 and 10 seconds um so about four minutes per k for 20k if you hit that time standard you're considered qualified we have a quota that's 50 athletes um and so any athletes that don't have that time standard um which will be probably around half maybe maybe 20 athletes will have the standard and 30 athletes will then qualify through a ranking system so every level of race has a different kind of placing bonus category so world championships obviously you get a lot of bonus points for doing well um all the way down to like national championships you get some bonus points for doing well type of thing so that you kind of that's combined with your your times that you do in those races to create kind of a score and then they take the average of your best three scores and that kind of you know, how you create a world ranking and then so basically if you're not one of the athletes with standard but you're in the top 50 in the in the rankings um then you can qualify through that route as well then every country can only send up to three athletes so you know if you're if you're the fourth highest ranked athlete in your country um even if you're ranked 20th in the world you're out of luck you know you can only send each country can only send and three athletes mm -hmm. okay okay so when will you know if slash when you're uh, you're selected for the next uh, next year so the qualifying window has opened up for the 20k 20k walk already um I'm currently in the rankings, uh, so if I'm able to just stay in the rankings, I'll be good. Um, I haven't hit the time standard yet, but I, that is the goal. The goal is to get the time standard, um, you know, and 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 qualify that way. It is different for me this time around. You know, the 50k really was where I excelled and and what my, what my best event was. So definitely learning how to be better at the 20k. 20k, the shorter stuff is obviously harder as you get older as well. Um, so even though I'll be, I'll only be 33 next year in Paris for the 20 K that is getting a little bit older. Um, whereas for the 50 K I would have been like in my prime. So okay. it's a little bit of a struggle. You know, I don't know if a medal is really going to be as possible as, as it was for me in the 50 K, but you know, we're going to give it the, our best shot. And I was tense in the 20 K at the at Rio Olympics. Um, so, you know, I definitely believe in my, in my ability to hopefully come away in the top eight and and uh and yeah that would be a good possible end to my career i don't really i don't know i haven't i haven't thought much beyond paris okay. yet so uh, okay okay cool um so yeah why did they remove the 50k is there a reason or are there are there just a few old yeah. people sitting in and deciding that it's not worth it anymore yeah pretty much um you know, they have their reasons that i don't believe um They've claimed so. So the 50k race walk was at the Olympics, one of in track and field the only event where there wasn't a female equivalent. So there was a men's 50k, but not a women's 50k, which we okay. had been fighting against for years. We finally got a women's 50k at our World Championships in 2017, um, after a lot of years of of fighting for it. Um, so we were on the right track, but then um, yeah, the, the the IOC said no. Nah, actually, this event's too long, takes too long, um, and we just don't want it. We just don't want it anymore. Uh, which is such a shame because it's one of the few events that has total global representation. You know, race walking is one of the few events where you can have athletes in the top eight 
from North America, South America, um, you know, Australasia, Asia, Africa, uh, and Europe. Like no other event in track and field and very few other, almost no other sport can claim that level of representation. Um, you know, you, we have people in race walking winning medals from every continent. Uh, mm -hmm. So losing an event that, you know, South like Guatemala, um, Ecuador have had their first ever and, and for Guatemala, their only ever Olympic medals um, in race walking. So you know, it's a sport that really gives opportunities to countries that don't, aren't able to invest in uh, more expensive sports that, you know, that race walking is a very low barrier to entry. Um, so it is a shame that, that we're losing it. And 50Ks, last couple 50Ks at the Olympics and World Championships were incredibly exciting. You know, I, I don't know anyone who watched them that even people that said, yeah, I, I turned this on and thought, oh, maybe I'll have it on the background or I'll watch it for five minutes. It's, they said, yeah, I got hooked on it. I couldn't stop watching it. It was so compelling. Um, you know, I, and I think it really was. So it's, it's really is a shame that, that the IOC took it out. But as you said, it's a bunch of old white guys sitting behind a table uh, <laughs> thinking, th thinking they know, they know best what, what, you know, what the future looks like. And, and I don't think they do. And, uh, it's a, it's a shame that it's a shame that, that we lost it. Okay. Hopefully it will, uh, some, uh, supporters like you will, uh, will bring it back, uh, at some time, at some point in time. Um, you mentioned before that, uh, race walking is a judge sport. Um, is that the, the fact that you are every, every racer is scrutinized for, it's space and everything. I think there are, we're, we're going to explain it for the listeners who might not know. I think I know, so I'm going to try to explain and you'll correct me. I'll be pretty much, pretty much wrong. I think there are two main rules. One is that on every step, your leg must be straight at some point and you should never have your, uh, your two feet in the air. You should at least have one feet touching the ground flat. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So, so the front leg has to be straight when it lands on the ground. So okay. from the moment of contact with the ground has to be straight and just has to remain straight until it's no longer your front leg. So basically from the moment you're let your foot touches the ground till the moment it's underneath you, it's got to be straight. And then it, you obviously bend once you push, you, know, you, you bend your leg to push off and then straighten it again. It's not like we're doing the whole thing with our legs straight. Um, and then for the one foot on the ground, that's judged by the human eye. So no technology, no video cameras, just judged by by what the human eye can process and so the human eye is not as good as a camera obviously and so when you watch us in slow motion there is a moment in time when both our feet are off the ground um and so it's really frustrating because you know every four years at the olympics all they'll do is show slow motion replays of us being you know in their minds cheating and it's like well no like the mm -hmm. rule is it's judged to the human eye um and we've just all adapted to push that you know, that capability to, to its limit. Um, so, and, and we, we race because of the judges, you know, unlike a marathon where you'll go and race, you know, you'll start, you know, maybe you'll start in the stadium and you'll end 42 kilometers away, or you'll go and do a big 42 K lap and come back to the stadium. Um, because of the judging, we actually just race on a one or a two kilometer loop. Um, and so then all the judges are just had to stay in that one spot and watch us multiple times. So, you know, it's a little bit boring in that regard as an athlete, you're just doing circles around, around a loop. Um, but from a spectator perspective, it's much better because you can actually watch an entire race. You can stand mm -hmm. on the side of the course and watch an entire race unfold. Um, you know, which is, which is really interesting. 
And you think that has an impact also on, on the, the, the racers, the fact that, like you mentioned, when you go training, you can walk, you know, 40 kilometers without coming back to the same spot. And here, pretty much looping, whatever, 10, 20, 25 times the same loop. Does that have an impact or you just, you're just in your, in, your, you know, in your mind and you just race? There, there's some positives and some negatives. So on the positive side, you can really fine tune your aid. So because there's a, you know, you have an aid station every either kilometer or two kilometers um, that you can have your drink bottles or if it's really hot, you know, we'll wear like ice, like ice scarves and have different, you know, have, have a rotation of hats that will, you know, will be kept in the freeze in like a bucket of ice and we'll just change the hat every lap. Um, so you're really able to fine tune that element of it and make sure you get in all your nutrition. So in a 50K race, I'd be taking in about 1500 calories during the race wow. and sports drink and gels and all that stuff. And so I could, I'd have it planned out every nine minutes. So I would know exactly what I would need to do. Whereas a marathon, you might have an aid station every 5K. And so mm -hmm. you just don't get the same level of fine tuning that, that you get when in race walking. So um, that's one element of it that's really positive on the loop. It also is like, it's a lot of turns. You know, it's, it definitely slows you down a little bit having to do these hairpin turns at the, either end of every course, especially on a 1K loop where you're going, it's going 500 meters out around the corner, 500 meters the other way. Like it's, it does kind of sap your momentum. So, you know, I, it's, it's, we're all used to it. So it's, it's, we don't really think anything of it, but I think we would be able to go faster on, you know, on a course with, without turns like that. Awesome. Okay. So I would say enough about the sport itself of the effort itself itself. I'd like to dig into other types of questions that, you know, even if I look up online, I don't have the answers to. So I think that podcast will be the perfect uh, way of getting those, uh, those interesting insights. So, and the reason why I initially started that podcast was to talk to the best of the best in, you know, all the sports and most importantly in the sports that are not, you know, that popular, you know, soccer, popular hockey is popular. So we can, you know, can find a lot of stuff online, even looking for looking up your, your race last week, there aren't many, you know, newspapers or sport articles about it. So that's, uh, well, it's frustrating for people who like all kinds of sports that, like me, but there are also questions about, you know, the day to day that, uh, are just unanswered. So a couple of stuff that I, I, I want to, uh, check with you. So first of all, are you a professional? I guess you are. Yes. Yeah. So I, I this is, I'm lucky. I'm lucky enough that this is full time. Okay. So how many race walkers are full-time professional worldwide? Ah, uh, well, it's a really good question. I don't actually know. I, every country is very different. So, you know, I have some friends in Latin America who are employed by their military. They're, you know, they're part of the military and their, their job, their military position is to be an athlete and represent oh. the country that way. And so that's sort of how they, they get paid. So that's a really interesting system. Um, you know, actually a couple of the Americans are, are the same thing. Um, uh, so that's, you know, that's one way it's done. Um, you know, I have some friends who get no government funding, but have really good sponsors. And then I'm kind of in the middle where I have a little bit of sponsors and a little bit of government funding and it kind of combines, I'm able to get by. Um, so I, I do think a lot of, you know, a lot of athletes have a part-time job. A lot of the athletes will have, you know, work a little bit. I supplement my income by doing, doing talks and doing, um, doing, doing corporate talks and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, I don't know what the percentage would be. I think at the Olympic level, you're looking at probably, you know, 70% would be full-time maybe. Okay. Uh, in race walking. 
in race walking. Okay. Um, so you mentioned uh, sponsors. Where, when, I would say, did you get your first sponsor? Are you the one kind of, you know, doing the business development and, and trying to find the sponsors? They come to you. Is there any organization that helps you in that? How does that work for, again, I would say under um, pop, not popular sports or sports that are not, you know, considered to be interesting to be on, you know, the newspapers and, and the news? Yeah. So I'm my own agent, which is a, which is bad because I'm not a good agent. Um, but uh, I, I, the opportunity to have an agent is definitely there. I've just never really taken taken the, taken that opportunity. Um, yeah, my you know my first sponsor was actually my mom's company that she worked for, uh, Tech Resources. They were a mining company or are a mining company, and they they were an Olympic sponsor, and so they had a program to to help athletes of of family family members of people that work for the company who are athletes. Um, so that was awesome. I really enjoyed that was, you know, that was great support, helped pay for, for university and all that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, like now, even right now, like I have very few sponsors, um, it's, and it's a struggle. It's, it's, you know, sending out emails and trying to, trying to talk to different people and just ha either getting ignored or getting led on. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, this may be that, and then three months later going, oh, actually no, uh, mm -hmm. going, oh. Um, so it is really tough. It's, 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 fr it's a frustrating thing for sure. You know, I'm not the biggest social media influencer either. Like I don't love social media. I'm not, it's not my wheelhouse, but where my real value is, is what I do in my community. So again, I've spoken to over 10,000 school kids. Um, I do so much volunteering at, at, with different stuff in my community. And, and that's really where my value would be. But trying to convince companies that that has value is so much harder. You know, companies these days are lazy and they know how to put a monetary value on 20,000 Instagram followers or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Whereas saying, hey, yeah, like look at all this stuff I do face-to-face -face in my community. It's harder to value it and they're just, they're lazy. So they don't want to, they don't want that. They don't want to try to figure out how much that's worth. Um, so it's, it's tricky. Uh, you know, that, that part's really frustrating because, um, You know, I, I, I think I create a lot of value and it's been hard to convince companies that, that that's true. Um, before the Olympics, I was, I craft dinner came along and they actually came to me and, um, and asked for a partnership. And that was so much fun because they were a company that saw what my value was and saw mm -hmm. what I wanted to do with my, with my brand and what I want to do in my community. And they were just like, yeah, hell yeah. Like we want to help. And so After the Olympics, um, so I walked the 50K in three hours, 50 minutes, and 51 seconds, I think. And I got in like five minutes, whatever, 20 minutes after the race when I opened my phone for the first time. The first thing I saw was that Kraft Dinner had donated 35,051 boxes of Kraft Dinner to my local food bank. Like, awesome. that, you know, that was so cool. And then we did another thing where we had my face on a box that we auctioned off a couple hundred of them and we raised $20,000 for, for kids sport. Um, and so they were just sort of said, Hey, like we see what you're doing and we can help. We can, you know, we can, we can add to it. We can guess and, uh, what you're doing. So that was like the ideal, like the dream partnership, um, of finding someone who sees what you're trying to do and just wants to help. Yeah. And that's great. because you, you touched upon the very interesting point where you said marketing, whatever agencies or, or people can, monetize x thousands of followers on instagram which might all be 
fake ones that you bought on whatever website versus you. You said you talked to 10,000 kids in person who are, you know, kids from the neighborhoods or the city. That has much more. I mean, that 10K is 10 times as important as 10K on an Instagram account, which again might be fake, but that's not necessarily recognized or look at quantity over quality in that type of endorsement deals or stuff like that, I, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating for sure. Um, but, you know, even today, like finishing up my workout, some of the high school kids were out picking up litter along the, 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 the railway or the, the greenway. And I went by and a bunch of them were like, oh, it's, it's Evan Dunphy. And it's never just one name. It's never just Evan. It's always, oh, it's Evan Dunphy. And all, it never stops making me laugh when, when you, know, you have these like 14-year-old kids like yelling your name. Um, but yeah, like that, there's, there's, there's definitely value in that. And, um, you know, it'd be nice if, if, we could, if I could convince a few more brands that that was there. Mm -hmm. And um, when, when did you start feeling that need to yeah, give back to the community? I saw that you were running for, uh, I think, a, a city council seat a few months or years ago. Uh, I guess it's also aligned with all that community giving back. When, that, when did that start uh, you know, popping in your mind? After the Olympics in 2016 was probably like I'd been doing some stuff before then, but after the Olympics in 2016 was really when I realized I, you know, I, I didn't know anyone watched the race and and all this stuff, and and it kind of the way the race played out. There's really nothing else happening that morning um, back in Canada, so it was CBC was showing most of the race live, and so people were watching it, people were tuning in, and, and so afterwards, you know, I, I had all these different opportunities that had never existed before. And I got to go to some events and I, I got to link up with Kidsport, this charity that helps, you know, break down the financial barriers to by helping pay the registration fees for, for families who can't afford a kid, a kid some sport. And I just, I loved the, the message they were doing. I loved what they were, you know, trying to do. And I just got hooked on it. I said, I always wanted help. Like, what can I do? You know, who I am as a person, uh, I owe to sport. And so the idea that there's kids out there who don't get to follow that same path because of these financial burdens, I uh, was just like, well, no, that's not good enough. Um, you know, every kid should have the same opportunity that I was privileged enough to have. And so teamed up with them. And, and then in 2018, they were celebrating their 25th anniversary. And I kind of just wanted to do a little bit more and a big chunk of time in my, in the season where I had nothing to, to do. And I thought, okay, well, look, how can I make a difference? How can I use my platform for good? And so ended up walking 25K a day for 25 days um, and talking to 25 schools. And we raised $27,000 for kids sports and, you know, the kids all raised money and, um, and it was just, it was, it was so much fun. It was so cool. And, it, and that was, to me, was really that first ability of like being able to see the skills that I've developed chasing my dreams and how I could use those skills to make a difference in my community, you know, to sort of pay it, pay it back. Um, and, and so that's one of the really big things I talk about now when I go and do my school talks is like, yeah, chase, you know, set really big goals and chase after them and know that in that journey, you're going to develop some really unique skills. And if I can use my skill of walking fast for long periods of time, which is, you know, a pretty ridiculous skill to have in 2023, but if I can take that skill and, and use it to, you know, to raise, uh, raise 20, $26,000, $27,000, then whatever skills you develop in your journey are going to be valuable and you're going to be able to use them in your, in your community for good. Um, and so I, I think that was really the, the eye-opener to me and, and just have 
really try to continue that on. The other element of it is that my training is out in my community. You know, I'm, I, I get to see my streets um, at 12, 13 kilometers an hour. You know, I don't drive a car. So everything I do is at that kind of slower pace and I get to see mm-hmm. more of my city. And I, I think you just build a stronger connection to your community um, when you see it that way and, and when you get to interact with it in that, in that way. And I think that's really what led to like run for city council was just that different perspective that I had on on my city. Um, and I owe that to, to the training. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So you're a winner. You, you mentioned that win or lose mentality at the beginning. So I guess you're going to go back at it next time, right? The elections. I, would I that think I will. I got, I, I got pretty be, close. Like, you know, I, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. As I say, 2026 is the next election. And I got so close this time around, I was 440 something votes short. Um, right. so, you know, just like Rio, just like Rio, it kind of was like just off the podium, <laughs> just, just off the podium. And so, yeah, four years time, um, give it another, give it another run, use everything I learned from the first time around and, you know, hopefully, hopefully get on that podium. And would you, uh, would you like that to be part of your after career, after sport career, maybe, or I think, so. I think so. I, it's, it's that, it's that perfect for me. And it, it, it anyways, it seems like the perfect next step, you know, Taking, taking the lessons I've learned in sport, you know, my dedication, my teamwork, my sportsmanship, taking that and applying it in that new way to help my community. Um, I, I, to me, it just makes so much sense. I love it. I, I got really, really into the, the process of it all. Municipal politics, city politics to me is like training for a 50K. It's all this like really fine minutia that, <laughs> it, you know, when you're able to, when you're able to put it all together, you get this amazing outcome. And, 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 you know, I, I really enjoy that. I'm the guy that, you know, loves reading through municipal staff reports. I, I think last year there was times where I had read the staff reports more in depthly than the actual counselors had. That's just, um, oh, that's... <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I, I have a brain that, that, that likes that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, I definitely got hooked on it. I definitely think I'll run again. Awesome. Perfect. So best of luck for that. And also for you know, all the upcoming sports <laughs> competitions. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> um, okay. So we will reach the hour, which is on average, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, a few last questions that I'd like to, to ask. The first one would be if you were to talk to Evan, I would say Evan Dunphy at, uh, the end of that four minute, 58 second race when you were uh, 10 if you had a, a few advice you could give him what would the day be oh that's a great question um you know i i don't really know so after that race my this this guy came up to me and said hey like you look like you really enjoyed that i coach a bunch of masters athletes a bunch of older athletes uh, in race walking, but like, if you'd like to come and, and learn how to race walk with us, you, you know, you're more than welcome to come out and try it. That, what are we now? That was 23 years ago. That guy's still my coach. Uh, okay. so, you know, that, that, that guy who came up to me on that first day, you know, he's still, still my coach to this day. So I don't really know if I would have said anything. I don't know what I say to that kid, but, but you know, what I certainly want to do is, is, you know, all of the lessons that my coach taught me, I want to be able to one day be that person for, you know, someone else to, you know, to, to get to 
you know, see that, that next kid who really enjoys it and then say, Hey, like, yeah, you want to, you want to learn how to do this? Let's do it. Let's, let's go on this journey together. Um, so yeah, I, doesn't really answer the question you asked, but it's the answer that I'll give. <laughs> awesome. Um, perfect. Um, in a four by 100 meter race, there is a, uh, that stick that you give to the, to your partner who keeps racing. Um, if you were to give that stick to another athlete in your, um, in your friends or people that you know, that might, uh, have an interesting story like yours to tell on the podcast, who would that be? Ah. I don't know if the other as well. It's just because my English is not perfect. I'll make it better yeah. next time. <laughs> no, it's it's per it is perfect. Um, Kate O'Brien, she's uh she's a cyclist. She's a really good friend of mine. She competed in Rio in track cycling. Um, had right. a pretty pretty horrendous crash a couple of years later. Um, and and you know, a really long recovery process. A lot of a lot of issues. And then in Tokyo. Um, she competed in the Paralympics and won a silver medal in the Paralympics um, in in track cycling. And she's just the the she's the coolest person I know. So um, yeah, she would be the one that I would say her story is awesome, and she doesn't get to tell it enough. Okay, so if ever you think you can uh, introduce us, that will be wonderful, and I would love to. Of course. Uh... Awesome. Uh, next question. One of the last one is, since I started that podcast, I'm building a wall of fame, not the hall of fame, but the wall of fame mm. uh, with a few uh, whatever gears or stuff that uh, athletes have used and signed. Uh, is there anything, a jersey, a hat, uh, whatever, a sock, <laughs> anything you have in your old drawers that you would either give away or uh, or throw away uh, that you might sign and, and send here in Montreal? Yeah, I cert certainly, certainly. I have, you know, that's the one the best thing about track and field is that you get you get bibs from every every oh, race yeah. so i can definitely definitely find a bib from uh uh from from one of my big competitions and and uh sign that and uh and send it over that would be wonderful i'll send you like a prepaid envelope or something i'll do my part of it. <laughs> okay uh cool so what uh that's two questions what can we wish you uh sport wise and personal uh personal life stuff and uh where can we follow you what where should people find you yeah i just i just want to keep having fun that's that's the biggest thing um yeah follow me i'm i'm pretty pretty active on twitter fairly outspoken when i need to be um <laughs> instagram i try to post as much as i can i'm not on tiktok but uh twitter and instagram are both at evan dunty um, those okay. are the best places to find me. Perfect. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much, Evan. That was a lot of fun. Your story is uh, pretty amazing from your uh, tenure race to uh, to that uh, that medal in the Olympics. So thanks so much for joining. And uh, we'll uh, we'll watch you on TV. Hopefully we can, we can see you on TV. Ah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you're still here, it's probably because you liked the episode, right? So, if you want the podcast to grow and get more exceptional athletes, you can play your part by following us on your favorite podcast platform and on Instagram at unfiltered.athletes. It really helps us. And until next time, enjoy life! <laughs>